0: what's up everybody i'm back with another edition of the macro insights podcast where i'm joined by gordon johnson gordon is the founder of glj research where they provide various data analysis and insights on the market we go over the overall macro economy where we are how we got here the jobs market various data points And then we take a deep dive into Tesla and Gordon's theory and theses on Tesla as he's kind of made a name for himself on uh, his analysis of Tesla. He is a noted Tesla bear. So we get into all of that. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear from Gordon and myself in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice and is strictly the opinion of myself and Gordon. So please, please, please consult with a financial professional prior to making any financial decisions and just know that the podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is only the opinion of myself and Gordon. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. And for those listening on any podcasting 2.0 apps that are streaming me, Sats, It is greatly appreciated. I record at varying times during the week, so I don't get to read all the boosts or anything like that. But they are greatly appreciated. All those five-star reviews that you have been leaving are also greatly appreciated on anywhere you get podcasts. So be sure to hit that subscribe button uh, to get the next episodes directly to your feed. And if you are watching this on YouTube, you get to see my pretty face. Uh, be sure to give this a like and subscribe to my channel. I've been trying to grow it. It's been growing greatly, and I really appreciate it. So like, subscribe, give the comment. You guys know the drill by now. Uh, it allows me to get great guests, and I have one in the waiting room here. I have Gordon Johnson here, who is uh, is big shot on Twitter and everything and everything else. So Gordon, how you doing today, man? Hey, good. Good to, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So for those are in, that are in the audience that might not know much about you or your background, why don't you give us uh, the little spiel here? Like, how did you get to where you are today? And uh, what do you do in the space?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I started off in investment banking. I'm I'm, I'm an old guy. You know, I started off on Wall Street at J.P. Morgan in 2001. Did that for two years. Moved over to equity research, uh, Credit Suisse, then Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. The number of smaller shops, uh, Bank Capital, uh Uh, Axiom Capital, Wolf Research. And, you know, we were finding a lot of opportunities on the short side. Um, And the problem is, when you work for somebody and you have short recommendations, um, it doesn't last long on the sell side. Uh, The sell side is supposed to be, you know, research driven and agnostic to, um, you know, being positive or negative, but that's just not the case. If you look at the uh weighting of buy sell holds on Wall Street it's probably like 90% buys and the reason is because at major shops be it investment banks driven by investment banking business or you know primary research shops where you know th- the real revenue is driven by management access if you're not positive on companies you don't get access and if you don't get access you don't make money so i feel like you know if you're going to have sell ratings you're not going to last long outside of having your own firm. So that's why I started GLJ research in 2018. Um, so I wouldn't have somebody, you know, sitting over top of me telling me that you you can't have sell ratings, which I pretty much had my entire career. Um, so that's how I've got where I'm at. Um, you know, we do, uh, we like to do, um, you know, fundamental, uh, bottom up. Well, we like to look at top down opportunities. What I mean by that is find opportunities where we can have a Strong view on supply and demand, and then from there find specific stocks where um, you know we can do bottom up analysis to um, uh, to uh, supplement or um, you know help out with our our top down. So that's kind of that's kind of how I got to where I'm at and kind of our, our focus.
0: yeah, for sure and and it does seem like pretty interesting because you started this in 2018, you said so it's been about five years or so. Uh, but in those five years, the past three have been, you know, a little bit wild. Obviously, with the COVID pandemic and the stimulus packages, um, you know, the GME AMC craze. There's been a lot of various kind of events, and now we're kind of in a in a different macroeconomic time. Like it seems like there's been a lot of cracks underneath the surface of the economy, but the stock market has been doing kind of well. So uh, let's let's dive into it there. So you know, kind of how do you think? Uh, I guess overall macro view. How do you, where do you think we're, we're at? And, uh, you know, how do you think we were, uh, we're like shaping up compared to maybe uh, pre COVID? Uh, I, I guess is the, the phrase I'll use here, but uh, maybe not necessarily, I guess, like pre pre COVID, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: So I think there's a big misconception among, you know, politicians uh, who greatly influence what the Fed does and the lion's share of retail traders. Um, and investors, and that is that the stock market is the economy. Um, and the stock market is not the economy. Um, um, and in fact, you know, there's been a number of times in history where you've had significant sell offs in the stock market, yet there was no recession. Um, so I think what's happened is you've had aggressive, extremely aggressive uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy, but keep in mind, You know, monetary is the Fed printing money. Fiscal policy is the government spending money. But the government can't spend money if the Fed doesn't print it. So this all really goes back to the Fed. Um, And you had effectively, when Obama took office um, and the banks got in trouble, um, you had, you know, this invention of quantitative easing, which was effectively printing money to buy bonds. Um, And what that has done is it's created the biggest wealth gap slash inequality um, slash burden on poor people, uh, and, and, and I shouldn't say poor. I mean, when I, when I say poor people, I mean, like, you know, basically the non-rich, which is basically 90% of Americans we've ever seen, right? The reason why home prices are up, you know, since 2008, you know, what, you know, 300, 400%, yet minimum wage is essentially flat is because the Fed started printing money to buy mortgage-backed securities. Which is effectively printing money to buy houses, that artificially inflates the value of houses, which has essentially pushed an entire generation of Americans, uh, the millennials, um, out of the ability to afford a house. Um, that's not uh, organic; it's it's inorganic. Um, so where we find ourselves today is in an environment of extremely aggressive, you know, um, monetary policy from the Fed. Right? We just had. You know, there was a small bank that, you know, um, had problems and immediately the Fed resorts to, you know, nearly $400 billion over two weeks of quantitative easing. Now, everybody says it's not quantitative easing. I I just don't disagree. I I just disagree. Um, You know, instead of printing money and buying it outright, um, they printed money and lent it out to buy bonds from banks. That's quantitative easing. That money is finding its way into the stock market, as we've seen. Um, Since the Fed did the BTFP, um, you know, every week the stock market has been up. The problem, though, is this creates significant imbalances and it encourages significant moral hazards. So that said, I think where we're at is, you know, against all that backdrop, you have inflation, right? Core inflation at 5.6 percent as of yesterday, which is just unacceptable and uh, debilitating to the bulk of people in the US, i.e. it just significantly reduces their purchasing power. So the question is, you know, will the Fed be able to continue to get away with this aggressive printing? Um, and I think the answer later this year is gonna be no.
0: Yeah, so, so let's talk about that then, because like the, it, it is kind of interesting, because like you said, they, they're they going through, you know, some call it quantitative easings, others don't really describe that. But essentially, it was like a bailout of Silicon Valley Bank, right? I mean, uh, backing up all their customers' deposits, all that kind of things. And they've essentially come out and said, if there, there's any other banking situation, you know, they didn't outwardly say this, but they kind of hinted towards that they would, they would not allow any, like, uh, depositors... Um, uh, Any of their deposits to not be insured, whether that's the Fed quantitative easing, as you've kind of described it, or, uh, you know, through FDIC insurance, if that's applicable in those situations. Um, So but on the flip side, the Fed has kind of continually raised interest rates throughout this. They've obviously had like an intense hiking cycle, the, you know, hiking interest rates at a historic pace. Um, and they've kind of, I guess, essentially like let the foot off the pedal slightly by doing some 25 basis points hikes uh, in the past couple of meetings. And then it seems like the next one is uh, pointing toward 25 basis points. But on the flip side, uh, it seems like uh, the market's kind of calling for a reversal <laughs> of that and a pivot. Um, so, you know, with that kind of playing out as quantitative easing and almost item <clears throat> tightening kind of going on at the same time. You know how does that? I guess in the end play out because it seems like they're they're tightening up money, but they're also kind of uh, you know backing it up and uh, you know printing it, it so to speak.
1: Yeah, and and just just to, to to highlight to your listeners, when I say the stock market is not the economy, if you look at the S and P five hundred, it was down forty percent, peak to trough in both nineteen eighty seven and over the two thousand to two thousand two time frame, and in both of those periods there was no recession. So. Again, the idea that the stock market is the economy is dead wrong. Now, um, with respect to where we're at right now, I think there's a very interesting dynamic unfolding. Um, And let me explain what I mean by that. So clearly the CPI inflation data came out yesterday, right? And that was all the buzz. Um, And I think that uh, there was a very important takeaway there that I think some people may have missed. And, 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 And so what I mean by that is, you know the inflation report if you look at um inflation for all items less food and energy um december january february march december 2022 and then january february march 2023 on a month over month basis that number is 0.4, 0.4, 0.5, and 0.4 so it's annualizing at five percent which is way too high and simply unacceptable right their target is two but you know Sticky 5% inflation will be crushing to the masses. So when you also consider, right, that in the most recent CPI inflation report, the energy component was down 3.5%. Yet, um, since March, gas prices are up 7.4%. In April month to date, oil prices are up 10%. It seems like the energy component is re-emerging with a vengeance, if you will, with respect to its contribution to inflation. And then looking at the shelter component, which is a big percentage of um, uh, CPI inflation, you know, it's like, you know, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, 2022, 2023, month over month, you're talking about 0.7, 0.7, 0.6, 0.8, 0.7, 0.8, 0.6. Point is, it's annualizing at around 7.4%, which is debilitating. So the point is, you have inflation that looks like it's anchored at 5%, with an energy component that was down 3.5% in March, despite the fact that since the beginning of March to today, gas prices at the pump are up 7.4%, and oil prices are up 10% in just April. It seems like you know you could see um, – the inflation beast, if you will, um, uh, reemerge in April, and against that entire backdrop, you have a, a Federal Reserve that currently has six billion dollars in excess reserves and uh, reverse repos sitting on its balance sheet. What that means is, if they start to cut rates, um, that money that's sitting on their balance sheet, right? That's money that effectively banks have at the Fed that they're getting, you know. 4.8% on. If the Fed starts to cut rates, banks will take that money out of the Fed and use it in other, other areas, i.e. buying stocks, buying houses, etc. So if the Fed starts to cut rates, you're going to see a massive increase in M2 money supply. And you already have m 2 v the velocity of money surging the most we've seen in years. So that would create significant inflation. So I think The Fed is between a rock and a hard place with respect to their ability to cut rates. Keep in mind, the market expects the Fed to start cutting rates in July. The Fed's guidance is they're going to go to 5.125 percent and keep it there through the end of December. So basically, three months out, someone's going to be wrong. And given we think the Fed is between a rock and a hard place, we think the someone who's going to be wrong is Mr. Market. Um, And clearly, that's not priced in.
0: Yeah, and it it has been interesting, right? I mean, we're we're talking about you know a lot of potential cracks in the market, right? I mean, the CPI data obviously is extremely high. I mean, you alluded to uh, you know oil and gas, like energy prices. I mean, I just filled up my car yesterday, and I was paying three fifty four a gallon. So, uh, and I'm down here in Florida, so that's not exactly normal. I know that the prices like a couple years ago were right around two dollars. So. Um, You know, I I definitely agree with you that I don't think inflation is really going anywhere. Maybe it's becoming the quote unquote new normal that we've been uh, phrased that we've been tossing around here for the past couple of years. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're seeing unemployment kind of go up, although it is a little bit lower. You know, maybe the job market isn't as as strong as as, you know, maybe we're potentially seeing. But on the flip side of things, like you have said, you know, the the market isn't indicative of the overall economy. You know, year to date, S&P 500, I'm looking at it now, it's about, uh, you know, 8 percent in the green. And, uh, you know, on an average year, that's that's uh, pretty good for the entire year. And we're only a quarter into it. Right. And we've seen other things like, you know, growth in tech stocks kind of shoot up astronomical numbers at since the beginning of this year. So, you know, on the flip side of things, uh, do you think uh, I mean, obviously, it's not financial advice or anything like that. But, um, you know, if the Fed holds true and the market is essentially like pricing in these price, uh, these uh, rate cuts by July, you know, how does that situation play out as far as the market goes? Is there still going to be, you know, massive amounts of volatility where some things are going to be in the green and whatnot? Or do you think, uh, you know, we might essentially have like a, a stock market crash if we're pricing in all these cuts and the, the Fed essentially holds true?
1: Well, let's address two things, right? So I think there's a big misconception around the jobs market. And let, let, let me explain. So, so, you know, the most recent label labor report, in my view, was amazing. Um, And the reason I say it's amazing is because the Fed has been hiking rates for roughly a year, yet not much has changed in the labor market. Um, And that is when when you compare today's labor market to the 2016 to 2019 feel-good times pre-pandemic, job creation is currently running at double the rate of the feel-good times. The number of unemployed people seeking jobs is near a historic low currently. And average average hourly earnings of non-management employees are still rising at over five percent per year. That's roughly double that what we saw in the you know 2016 to 2019 feel good times. Um, and then lastly, the labor force participation rate for people 24 to 54 years old is the highest it's been since before the Great Recession. You know, so you know a lot of people talk and say, well, there's been a lot of tech job cuts. And that's also extremely misleading. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because if you look at the tech, tech job cuts that have happened, you know, despite that being the hotspot for many of the recent layoffs, um, layoff announcements, since peaking in November, 2022, employment in the tech sector is down just 1.1%. And it's still up 6.4% from the peak of the feel good times, i.e. 2016 to 2019. And then when looking at unemployment in this in the tech sector, you know while it's risen to three point four percent, it rose to three point four percent in March. You know um, it's still well within the range of the feel good times. And in fact, if you look at the tech sector jobs, we're now starting to move back higher. Um, so the point is, like the job sector remains extremely hot. Um, it remains extremely hot, and the problem is. That when you have a hot job sector, um, you know, um, you know, people effectively, you know, make more money. If people are making more money, they're going to go out and spend that money. And if people spend that money, you know, inflation is going to continue to be um, supported. So I think that the labor market is indicative of sticky inflation. Um, So that's one thing. I think that, you know, people, you know, talked about the labor market being concerned. You've got politicians talking about millions of jobs lost. But that's just fear mongering. When you look at the data, the job market is still extremely strong. Number one. Number two is if you look at what's happened with respect to the Fed's quantitative tightening. um, And it's important to remember that, like, you know, they were doing this quantitative tightening, then one small bank and and keep in mind, right? What happened at SVB was completely predictable. And what I mean by that is you look at what you know the central bank in Mexico and the central bank in Brazil did, among other emerging markets, um, or developed markets, if you will. Um, and they, they they significantly raised rates in 2022, 2021 slash 2022. And a lot of other countries did as well. Why? Because the Fed told you they were going to start raising rates and they did that to protect their currency. What happened at SVB was just simply um, uh, you know, malfeasance and just a massive um, uh, risk-taking attitude from the executives there. You know, you you had a bank that was effectively, um, uh, you know, operating in very short duration. You know, um, uh, securities that didn't take any um, cadence to the Fed telling you years in advance that it was going to be hiking rates. Um, and thus, when rates moved up, you know the bank got hit. The idea that, as a result of that, you had two things happen, right? You had the depositors bailed out, which I think is a slap in the face of, you know, U.S. taxpayers. But more importantly, in our view, you had the Fed come in and create this BTFP facility, where they're effectively buying, you know, treasuries from banks that are underwater. Um, and I shouldn't say buying; it's lending money out to them. Um, uh, so they're making assets that, you know, are valued at 70 cents on the dollar whole. Um, and and that's what I think is effectively quantitative easing. Like quantitative easing is the fed printing money to buy bonds. That's effectively what they're doing here. Now, the definitions around how they're doing it, you know, some people will say, I'm crazy to say that, but I mean, just look at what happened with the stock market. I mean, you know, the stock market has been up significantly since they've done that. The problem again, with all of that is they're doing this. They're doing these things which are unnecessary um, in the face of 5.6% core inflation that looks sticky. Um, when they print money, you know, you know, it creates inflation. So one thing to keep in mind, right, is you know, since QT started, that was uh, June first, 2022. You know, the Fed's balance sheet has come down by 282 billion. The problem is. The Treasury General Account, which is the, the the balance that Janet Yellen manages, has has increased by six hundred and twenty billion. So she's completely she's nearly, you know, tripled the quantitative tightening that the Fed's done with her own form of quantitative easing. When the Treasury General Account balance fall, falls, that's effectively Yellen going out in the market and buying bonds. So that's putting cash into the market. So she's completely sterilized, you know everything that the Fed has done with respect to quantitative tightening. So in in effect, there's been no quantitative tightening. Um, The problem, though, is the TGA account balance is nearing a level that she's going to have to refill it. Um, You know, following the drain we saw, you know, the week of April 4th, you're looking at a TGA account balance. I'm sorry, the the April 5th drain. You're looking at a TGA account balance of one hundred and sixty eight billion. Um, you know, that's the lowest level we've seen. Um, I, I think since, let's see here, um, since 1221, 1222 21. And if you look at the TGA account balance, you know, when, when the debt ceiling is, 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 is when that, when that dilemma is resolved, as we saw, right. W- w- the last time the debt ceiling, um, dilemma was resolved, um, uh, you know, Janet Yellen, I think that was around you know late 2020. Janet Yellen had to refill the uh, not Janet Yellen, but the Treasury had to refill the TGA, meaning instead of buying bonds, they had to go out and sell bonds into the market, which is taking liquidity out of the market. And what happened? Uh, the S&P 500, I think, sold off of the next six months by 15 percent. We're near that dynamic happening. So you, so not only are you going to have. a a treasury that's draining liquidity from the market imminently because effectively the treasury is about to run out of money, which will force politicians to come to an agreement on the debt ceiling. But you're also going to have quantitative tightening, which the last time the treasury had to refill their coffers, you know, the fed was still doing QE. And despite that fact, the S and P 500 sold off by about 15% over the next six months. So look, it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. There's a lot of moving parts. But it looks like we're about to see a significant drain of liquidity from the U.S. markets at a time when you have an S&P 500 index that's up eight percent year to date. As you said, despite the fact that the expectation is that EPS will be down six percent in Q1, and you know cash flow is going to be down twenty percent, um, trading at an eighteen times multiple. Right? We're at levels that you know the SP 500 is at levels. The same levels it was at when the Fed funds rate was zero versus the Fed funds rate at over 4.5% now. That makes absolutely no sense. So I just think that there's euphoria in the market right now. Um, A lot of people are trading euphorically. And when some of these dynamics start to come into play, I think that you're going to see a sell off. And the difference between now and before is given inflation is raging, right, at, at over 5%, um, and the Fed has these dilemmas, i.e. if it cuts rates, you're going to see inflation go up even more. I don't think that they're going to be able to come to save the day this time as they have every time the past you know, 15 years.
0: All right, so yeah, I, I there was a lot to unpack there for sure, but I kind of want to get back into the labor market and uh, you know, discuss a little bit of that because, you know, you brought up that the, the labor market still seems like it's relatively strong, right? I mean, obviously I agree with you there about the tech sector, how the tech sector was, you know, a lot of high-paying jobs, essentially like people, you know, were uh, getting laid off in those tech jobs, but they were able to find, you know, maybe even higher-paying jobs within 2 to 3 months. Um, and they were already high income earners and um, but one thing I want to push back on, and, and I'd love to hear your, your opinion on it is the the gig economy where, you know, now we have essentially the ability to, or somebody just go on their smartphone, they could go, you know, drive Uber, pick up groceries, uh, do some various knickknack kind of tasks in order to, I guess, remain off of that, you know, quote unquote, unemployment pay. Do you think that is, you know, maybe part of the reason where, where, uh, I don't know if I want to say inflated, but that the job numbers aren't exactly where, you know, maybe they are. Maybe they could be. Um, And that do you think like, you know, do you take those, uh, I guess, job numbers kind of with a grain of salt because of this or, uh, you know, just because of the way that they're uh, reported and whatnot?
1: So if you look at information sector, so tech sector jobs in the U.S., right? Pre-pandemic, right? The good times from 2015 to 2020, right? basically March of 2020, you had about 2.75 thousand jobs in the tech sector in 2015 that rose to around, call it 2.9 million jobs um, in March of 2020. COVID hit, dropped to 2.6. And then post-COVID, we rose all the way to like three over 3.1 million. And so we rose to like 3.15. Then we dropped to like 3.05. And in the most recent month of March, we're back up to 3.1. So we're still significantly above where we were during the good times. And in fact, jobs are rising. All right. Number one. Number two, you look at payroll changes at establishments. Um, So um, this is looking at, you know, um, thousands of jobs added slash cut. And this is on a three month average basis. Um, In the month of March alone, there were 236 thousand jobs created, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But on a three-month basis, um, over the past three months, uh, there's been 1.34 million jobs created. And that's nearly double the rate we saw on average over the 2016 to 2019 timeframe, i.e. 549,000. So on average, on a three-month basis from 2015 to 2020, you had four, five hundred and forty-nine thousand jobs being added every three months. In the most recent period of March, on a three, on a, a trailing three-month basis, you had one point three four million jobs added. That's extremely strong, no matter how you cut it. Then we move to, you know, um, change in all workers self-employed. So this is, you know, um, all types of work, including those self-employed. Um, you know, this number is sitting at. Um, you know, just under two million uh, jobs. Whereas, on average, over the 2015 to 2020 time frame, this number averaged like less than a million. So you're looking at double now what we saw during the feel-good times. You look at the unemployment rate, which, barring the month of February 2020, it's at the lowest level we've seen in multiple decades um, on a three-month average. You know, you look at the participation rate of you know, prime, prime labor force, uh, working ages of 25 to 54, you know, it was 83% in March. Um, and we're sitting at, you know, near record low level or record high levels. Um, so people are participating in this labor market. And then you look at, you know, average hourly earnings, which have been coming down, but nonetheless, in March at 5.1% year over year is way higher Then, you know, in 2015, it was two. In 2016, it was two and a half. Got all the way in 2020 up to just over three. And we're now looking at five. So it's come down, but that wage growth is still very strong. Um, So the point is the job market is still extremely hot. And again, as I said, (coughs) you know, a strong labor market means consumers are working and making money. And because their incomes are rising, they're spending that money. Thus, you know, given consumers are spending and and the consumer spending trends trends have been strong as they have i think that's going to continue to fuel inflation until the fed makes some progress there
0: yeah, and that makes sense. Um, but, you know, with all that, you've kind of alluded to inflation essentially staying sticky, right? I mean, whether that's, um, you know, because of the job market or various other factors that we've kind of gone through, you know, in a sense, uh, throughout this this conversation. And uh, something interesting came out yesterday, I believe it was from the New York Fed, who said that they don't think that the Um, You know, the inflation of two percent is going to be anywhere until 2025, which obviously is like, you know, a year and three quarters away. Um, So do you kind of think that the you know, as we've been kind of describing throughout this, that inflation is going to be uh, sticky? um, Do you kind of subscribe to that theory? Do you think that or do you think like the Fed might be able to get some sort of a manage on on uh, the inflation rate that we have right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at services inflation, which remains sticky and is two-thirds of the mix, uh, CPI. You look at the fact that energy energy prices are starting to go back up. There's been little investment. You know, we drained the SPR, um, and the ability to continue draining that is is, is de minimis now. Um, uh, you look at, you know, shelter inflation, which, you know, over the past year is averaging roughly 7.4%. Um, and you look at the fact that the Fed just, you know, infused, you know, they've taken money out, but let me, let me do this. So over the past, so, you know, when, when, when the SVB thing happened the week of, you know, three fifteen, the Fed did 297 billion of balance sheet expansion or QT or QE. Then the next week they did 94 billion. So that's 391 billion in two weeks. Now, over the past, you know, over the prior two, the next two weeks, and we'll get data after the close today for this week, you know, they did they, they drained 20, 20, 28 billion, they drained 73. So over the past four weeks on in net, the Fed has done 290 billion of quantitative easing. Um, and the reason that's important is because if you look at the progress they made on QE, I'm sorry, quantitative tightening, since June of 2022, right? So from June of 2022, to the week of three one, you know, they took five hundred and seventy one billion dollars out of the market, right? That's 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 you know over a, a half year it took them, you know, to take five hundred and seventy one billion dollars out of the market. Then in two weeks, right? With with any uh, any crisis, they infused three hundred ninety one billion. You understand the problem there, right? Like these guys have no discipline. It's, this is just reckless activity, um, and you know, Congress is supposed to have oversight of the Fed, but clearly Congress is not doing their job. In fact, it's been said that, like, you know, a number of people in Congress traded banks ahead of those, you know, bailouts, which is just, you know, I, I, I don't know how else to say it, just just corruption slash reckless. Um, so my point is, the problem for the Fed, though, is that they're in between a rock and a hard place. The reason I say that is because you've had, again, yell and do. Since June of 2022, or when QT started from the Fed, you know, she's dropped the TGA account balance by $621 billion, right? That's that's nearly three times of the QT that the Fed has done over the same time frame. But her, her, her TGA balance is about to go to zero. And when that happens and she runs out of money, she has to refill that, which will happen with the debt ceiling agreement. And again, the last time she did that, hold on, let me just find out when that was, one second. I just wanna make sure I'm giving you. um, Let's see here. Yeah, so from mid-December of 2021 to May of 2022, the TGA account balance increased by 906 billion. Um, and that was her replenishing uh, the TGA account balance. And over that same time frame, the S&P 500 fell 17.2%. I just want to make sure you understand what I'm saying here. There's people look at the Fed's balance sheet, but you have to look at three items when looking at liquidity in the U.S. market. It's. It's not just the fed balance sheet it's also what's happening with the treasury general account balance which is you know the treasury's effectively checkbook and the reverse repo account um as the reverse repo account goes up that's money coming out of the market as the reverse repo goes down that's money going into the market so my point is the tga account balance is nearing zero right the last time she had to replenish again uh december of 2021 to may of 2022 where she had to grow that account balance by 906 906 billion which was effectively 906 billion of liquidity coming out of the market the S&P 500 fell 17.2% over that time frame okay so <clears throat> my point is she's about to have to do that again right and in addition to that when that last happened the fed was not doing qt they were doing qe i e they were infusing money into the market, not pulling money out of the market. They're now doing QT. So my point is, imminently, you're going to have a liquidity crisis in the U.S., which typically resonates with lower stock prices. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense, um, which, I mean, it, it is kind of an interesting time, though, because of, of what you're saying, that, that it usually correlates with lower stock prices. So, I mean, if we kind of like reverse the clock here, uh, you know, we have seen a big, you know, jump up in some of the stocks, uh, you know, specifically. I mean, even the S&P 500 is up over 8% throughout this quarter. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of other stocks. And, you know, you've made, uh, I guess, maybe some enemies online with your viewpoints your, your on, on Tesla and some of these other kind of growth stocks that have essentially, like, you know, shot up throughout the beginning of this year. So, you know, do you think, I guess, that is some sort of delusion or there's something that, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe that, that uh, the market is kind of, uh, I guess, forward looking and essentially just, uh, I, I guess, trying to reach for something that might not necessarily be there?
1: No, no, no. There, there's, a, there's a clear explanation for what happened at the beginning of this year. Um, so one of the things that we look at, so people look at the Fed, right? A lot of people look at the Fed, the ECB and the BOJ, their balance sheets. But you also have to look at the PBOC, right, the, the Chinese um, central bank's balance sheet. The Bank of Korea, Bank of Canada, uh, Bank of Brazil, uh, Swiss National Bank, and Canadian Bank. And when you look at all of those guys and you add them all up, what you'll see is that um, at the beginning of this year, there was a massive increase in balance sheet at um, the PBOC. PBOC did $380.2 of of US dollar balance sheet expansion the week of 1423 and then 4 weeks later the week of 2123 they expanded their balance sheet by another 206.3 billion so if you look at the total of all of the um, all of the central banks that i just mentioned 678 it's like 11 central banks in the month of in the month of january all of those central banks combined did $782 billion of quantitative easing. Keep in mind, in the month of, 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 of December, all of those banks combined withdrew, right? They did they, they did 81 billion of quantitative tightening. They withdrew 81 billion. So what happens is when these banks balance sheet, when these bank balance sheets expand, right, 782 billion in January of positive. You know, liquidity into the markets, negative 81.2 billion of liquidity in October. I'm sorry, in in, in December of 2022. So there was a big, massive expansion of liquidity to start this year. And I think that's why you had this massive increase in all of these risk assets, because effectively what happens is that liquidity goes into stocks for, for stating it very simplistically. So then, what happened in, you know, February? In February, if you add up all those banks' liquidity, negative two hundred and eighteen billion. So I'm just gonna pull up the S and P 500 chart. What did it do in February? I I don't remember exactly, but I'm gonna assume it was down. Um, Let's see here. So in February, yeah, for the month of February, the S and P went from about forty seventy six. In exiting February, it was thirty nine seventy. Right. So that's what happened in February. And then in March with the BTFP from the Fed, you had a net 227 billion of, you know, effectively quantitative easing because of what the Fed did. So, you know, in March, you know, and they started that in the middle of the month. So, you know, you know, the big drain in in February, the market was down, it moved down, it was going down even more, and then all of a sudden they did this massive infusion and basically in mid March, the market just shot straight up, um, and so I think that there's explanations for what happened in the market this year, and I think that those explanations um, uh, are also uh, representative of what happened in some of these mem stocks and money losing um, slash you know Tesla like stocks. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And so, you, you know, we, we talked about, you talked about the growth stocks and kind of, you know, the explanation behind what what has happened. But it seems like you've been, uh, you know, kind of against Tesla for quite some time. So why don't you, uh, you know, I guess, you know, me, I'm kind of, uh, I guess I'm, I'm on the fence about Tesla, right? I mean, I see that there's, it's a very polarizing topic, right? There's, you know, people that live and die by every word that Elon says. They think that, you know, every kind of move that he makes is outstanding. And then on the flip side of it, Um, You know, I hear a lot of bears that say, essentially, if you were to price Tesla as like a car company, you know, is extremely overvalued. Um, So, you know, when you look at it, uh, when you look at Tesla, like lay out your thesis for it and, uh, you know, maybe uh, explain why you're you're short on the stock as a whole.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the Tesla thesis is actually quite simple. Um, You know, you have a company that you know, is effectively seeing its growth slow significantly. Um, and, you know, despite that fact, you know, I think that last time we checked, I think that like Tesla is valued at more than the next seven largest automakers combined. Yet on a trailing 12 month basis, you know, they've sold like 4% of the cars that those automakers have sold. So the thought with Tesla is, you know, you're going to have tremendous growth Um And you're going to have, you know, continued, you know, you know, very strong margins. And what we're seeing now is Tesla is having to resort to aggressive price cuts. I think on average, the price cuts in Q1 uh, were like 10 percent, yet their volumes were up just 4 percent. So when typically when you cut prices, right, the price cuts at the very least due to elasticity of demand, Result in a similar demand response, and Tesla is not seeing that, right? And not only are they not seeing that, but you know, for four quarters in a row now, their production has been more than their sales, um, and that's not a logistics issue or a delivery issue at the end of the quarter. You know, for four straight quarters now, which is a record left, you know, that's a record, record, um, record trend. That means that there's just too much capacity. Uh, of Tesla cars in the world versus demand. And keep in mind, you know, they're they're not selling the cars they're producing. They're engaging in margin slashing price cuts that are more than the volumes that are resulting from those price cuts. And against that entire backdrop, two of their facilities, two of their quote unquote gigafactories, which is a name they made up, but nonetheless are running at 20 to 40% utilization. So the point is, I think you're going to have a significant deterioration in their margins in Q1 when they report earnings next week, I think on Thursday. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday, I think. Uh, It doesn't matter. The, The earnings are next week. You're going to have a significant deterioration in their margins, but it's going to get even worse in Q2, right? They've already announced massive price cuts in the U.S. They just announced price cuts in China. I think they'll announce price cuts in both Europe and I'm sorry, they announced price cuts in Hong Kong, not China, but you know th- theoretically um, I think they'll announce broader price cuts in Europe and China imminently. So the, the economics on their business, I think are going to get even worse um, in, in, in Q2. Um, and, you know, the problem with Tesla is, you know, Elon Musk has like what, 130 million followers on Twitter, which is like a third of all the people, um, In the United States. And a lot of those people are fanboys, slash, in my view, cult members. So it's like everything he does or Tesla does or any of his companies is positive in their mind, right? So if they cut prices, it's positive. If they raise prices, it's positive. So I think a lot of people get confused because you have so many people saying how this is positive. But the reality is, if you're cutting prices and it's not resulting in at least equivalent volume increases, that's extremely negative. Right. And the way the reason why every single automotive maker in the world has went bankrupt outside of Ford is because they've ramped capacity ahead of demand. And that's seems like that's exactly what Tesla has done. So the reason why we're negative on Tesla is not because we have anything against Elon Musk, although he's of questionable character in our view, uh, given he has a pathological problem with the truth in our view. And I can explain that. It's really fundamental because, like, typically when people, when when executives have a pathological problem with the truth, like Elizabeth Holmes and Trevor Milton, you know, regulators correct for that. But it's it's clear to us that Elon Musk can literally do whatever he wants, and regulators will not do anything. So that's not any part of our thesis. <clears throat> we do not think the U.S. government will ever do anything substantial to Tesla, uh, no matter what they do. So our focus is on the competition and the units. And the reality is, you know, they're having to cut prices. Um, they can't sell out their existing capacity. The price cuts are not resulting in similar volume increases. And this stock is valued at more than the seven largest next automakers combined, suggesting that like they should be growing units, you know, significantly every quarter, And the unit growth in Q1 is going to be 4%. And in Q2, minus, you know, very aggressive price cuts is probably going to be flat to down. Um, So the point is this, like their earnings are about to take a huge hit. And that's not what the street is modeling. Their margins are about to take a huge hit. That's not what the street is modeling. And because you have so much competition, you know, you, you look at consumer reports um, or um, JD Power and reliability slash quality surveys. Tesla ranks last or close to it. What question mark? The reliability rate are out in the UK. Tesla ranks last um, in, in reliability. Full self drive, you know, um, Guidehouse ranks Tesla dead last in autonomous driving technology. Um, you know, Tesla said they were going to make their own batteries, I made mean, a lot of promises at battery day. We now know that they're simply buying batteries from Panasonic and CATL. Pretty much every promise they made, the bulk of the promises they made at Battery Day, we now know were myths, truths, myths, truths. Um, you know, he he launched this Tesla Semi, and he said he was going to have a video of like a 500 mile drive. That video hasn't come out, and we've seen multiple trucks of those towed. You know, his brother just sold stock. I think 20 million dollars worth of stock. The last time he did that, uh, which I think was 2021. Over the next six months, Tesla stock was down 50%. Um, so the reason why we don't like Tesla as a stock is because it's grossly overvalued and competition is crushing them. And the competition is only going to get worse in the US. It's already crushed them you know, in China and the EU, where in China, their market share has fallen from like 25% to 6%. In the EU, their market share has fallen from like to 35% to just under 10% and continuing to fall. And in the U S their market shares went from like 75% to 50% and GM and Ford are just getting started as well as others. So I think the reality is, you know, Elon Musk has gotten away with a lot, right? He's made claims that weren't true, et cetera. And people have valued them as such like Morgan Stanley currently values Tesla's um, uh, um, their insurance division at more than Geico. And their insurance division doesn't exist. They're giving them value for, like, you know, other divisions that they don't even have in the multiple billions. So I think as people realize that this company's overvalued, as people realize that they're not the leader anymore in EVs, as people realize that their quality is of suspect um, a condition, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Um, Edmonds has done a number of uh, studies where. They've looked at real world range versus claimed range. And Tesla is one of the only few automakers where all of its cars, most of its cars, the range is actually lower than what they claim it is. Everybody else, particularly Porsche, has real world range significantly long, uh, uh, significantly more than what they claim. So there's just so many things to where I think people are just going to say, you know, these other cars have better interior, similar or better real world range, significantly better service. And I don't have to be associated with, you know, all of the issues around Elon Musk. And you're seeing that as their market share deteriorates, as they have to cut prices and it's not resulting in new units. And I think that the earnings are going to be bad. So that that's a long winded way of why we we, we're negative on Tesla.
0: Yeah, no, and and I see your points on that, too. But, um, you know, one question I have for you, too, on that note is that, you know, Tesla recently, I I think within the past year or so, got kicked out of the S&P 500 ESG index um, because, you know, the ESG is essentially for, quote unquote, green companies, right? So you would think electric, I mean, the way that it's been portrayed, although, you know, I mean, that's either here nor there about how they, you know, manufacture these batteries and other things like that. Um might not be viewed as necessarily green, but, um, you know, why do you think, do you think that that has kind of, I guess, hurt the perception of Tesla um, in your view? And uh, yeah, I, I guess, how do you view that view by the uh, S&P 500, essentially just booting Tesla out of the um, ESG index?
1: I mean, I think it's hurt a little bit, but I think more importantly, you know, Tesla allowing, or sorry, Elon Musk allowing a number of questionable characters back on Twitter, um, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, a number of these kind of, you know, um, far right um, kind of uh, questionable you know, characters. You know, the rhetoric around you know, hate speech has increased. You know, I think it was like a 500% increase in the use of the word, the N word when Elon Musk took over, you know, his comments around, you know when Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked, and you know him putting out conspiracy theories around that. I think it's just, and you know, his constant endorsement of, you know, I think conservative, you know, some would argue, um, conspiracy theories. I think has incensed his core constituency of liberals um, against the car. It's like we've said this in a note. You know, driving a Tesla car um, is, you know, kind of the equivalent of wearing a MAGA hat now um and i think that a lot of his core constituency um just are turned off by that and because now you have multiple you know other options um where you don't have to buy a tesla but you can go ev i think that that's really what's hurt him i don't think it's the esg thing i mean you know i was shocked at if you look at the la times report that talks about the type of racism that was going on <coughs> at the tesla plant and the allegations that Elon Musk simply sent emails saying, "Hey, you know, you know, be tough," where you know people were, you know, being told to go back to their plantation um, in the facility. Black Black employees, you know, people were being called the N word. You know, they were putting you know KKK tropes in the bathrooms, um, and instead of addressing it directly. Um, you know, they were told to have tough skin. I mean, I thought that that was going to really hurt Tesla. You know, you think that like some of these big asset managers, like the Fidelities or the the Black Rocks, when they heard that would, you know, move away from this guy, but it didn't. So I don't think it's the ESG thing. I don't, again, I, I just think this guy is impervious to, um, being held to account for anything. You know, it's like, you know, these cars continue to wreck into, you know, um, you know, emergency vehicles on the road. You know, Nitsa has been doing this investigation for years. You know, he did a it black video in 2016 that we now know was completely doctored. The video was three, 3.5, 3, 3, three and a half minutes. You know, if you watch the video, it looks like the car's driving itself. The video starts out saying the driver is only there for legal reasons. The car's driving itself. And we now know that Elon Musk directed it. And it literally took like 500 miles to do it. The car wrecked multiple times. Um, It was completely doctored. Like, you know, I think that's worse than rolling a truck down a hill. Trevor Milton's going to jail. Elon Musk is paying no price for that. So I just don't think, I just think he's impervious to, um, you know, being held to account. And keep in mind, right, Trevor Milton rolled a truck down a hill, right? Nobody died. If you go to tesladeaths.com, it's been alleged that there's been like 20 deaths associated with autopilot which I'm sure some people can attribute to that painted black video. And yet there's been no consequence to Elon Musk or Tesla. So I just think these guys are above the law. Um, So I don't think any of that one can factor into their analysis. Um, And, but I think that the competition is a big problem. I think that the, the fact that you have so many other options that better interior equal or better real world range and much better service is a big problem. And I think that him taking over Twitter and kind of showing his hand, if you will, with respect to his aggressively conservative um, views and you know the hate speech, et cetera, uh, I just think has incensed a lot of people to his cars. And I think that's the bigger issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a whole nother rabbit hole we could get down of. But I mean, you know, just just from my, my view, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, you know, Elon has kind of pointed out that it, he's, you know, he paid the most in taxes over this, uh, you know, th- this past year than anybody's ever done in history. If he was, you know, super conservative, you'd think he'd probably try to find a way to get around that. And, you know, prior to this, uh, you know, him kind of taking over Twitter and and saying that he wants to go, you know, the conservative route. It's been documented that he's, you know, kind of voted the other direction uh, in previous elections, but you know, I, I don't know if we're gonna. Th- well, this has be like- been
1: documented. I mean, he said that, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, so, but- so let me just let me just give you a couple of things, right? So when Elon Musk purchased Solar City, in our view, we covered Solar City. It was on the way to bankruptcy, and if that if Solar City would have went bankrupt, that would have put a huge dent in Elon Musk's enterprise. And what he did is he showed a fake solar panel. On the set of Desperate Housewives to sell Solar City investors on the takeover. That that's not like something he promised that he didn't deliver on. That's just a mistruth, right? Elon Musk said he had funding secured to go private in the middle of a trading day, right? That's not something he, you know, later delivered on. That's just a mistruth, right? And he did the painted black video, which again completely doctored. So like, w- what shocks me—it doesn't shock me anymore, but it still surprises me. It's like, you see these things, right? He, he said at the height of COVID, right, at the height of the COVID pandemic, he forced his workers back to work. And then you had an explosion of COVID cases in the county they were in. And he said he was going to make ventilators. He's like, we're going to make ventilators, right? Ford and GM, <coughs> excuse me, they repurposed their facilities to make ventilators. Elon Musk didn't make one ventilator, right? It went with the Flint water crisis. He said he was going to fix everyone's pipes. And then what did he do? He sent like a couple of uh, water filters to a few schools. Like my point is this guy has shown a tendency to do horrible things. Yet people like you and others just simply say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Like it's, it's not, there's no question anymore in my view, like you can see these things. Well-documented like, you know, he called the, the, the hero who saved those kids in Thailand a pedophile. Like, I mean, these are just horrible acts, right? You, you, don't send your, you don't force your workers back to work against a county order at the height of COVID. He did. He got away with it. You know, you don't say you're going to make ventilators and then send a bunch of CPAP machines from China to hospitals with a Tesla logo on them. He did. He got away with it. You know, you don't say you have funding secured to take your company private in the middle of a trading day. Anyone else who did that would likely be in jail. He did, he got away with it. So my point is, like, to say that, like, well, I don't know, you know, it, it's just, you're, you're just neglecting reality in my view. But I've accepted that, you know, he'll continue to do these things and he'll continue to get away with it. So I think the reason, the, the focus on the stock should be the competition and the earnings, and from that perspective, I think this year is going to be very bad for them.
0: Yeah, and I and I agree with you there. And I do think, you know, he is somewhat of a, I guess, I guess we could call it like a marketer in a sense where he's able to, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, make the narrative look a lot better than it is, you know, I mean, I I worked in uh, some sort of industry prior to this, where I could, you know, I was analyzing the NHTSA laws and other things like that. And so when he markets, you know, full self driving and other things like that, that's obviously not not the case and not true. And that's that's been kind of a big conversation in that industry as well. So, you know, I get where you're coming from in that in that perspective, for sure. But, you know, you've been very generous with your time today, yeah, giving me a full hour of it and a little bit more. So I really appreciate you coming on here. Absolutely. Why don't, why don't you tell people where, where they could find you and what you got going on?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we post to Twitter, but the bulk of our research, uh, you know, 99% of what we do is, is published via, you know, our GLJ research. Um, and, you know, it's it's unfortunate that, you know, we go on TV so much about Tesla because we cover 19 other stocks, all of which we have similar interests in. Um, so hopefully, you know, people can see us for not just Tesla. And one other thing I'll highlight is, you know, a lot of the the Tesla naysayers talk about this this tip ranks uh, rating website. But I think that's the most egregious website, probably uh, one of the most egregious websites online, because, you know, it's like what that website does is they take your public recommendations, which, you know, we don't send them our research. So all they see is our Tesla notes. And then they try to basically rank you versus everybody else in the market. I mean, there's been times where they've had us covering stocks that we don't even cover. So I would caution people against, you know, looking at tip ranks as a means to, um, uh, rank an analyst, but, um, gljresearch.com is where you can find us um, and you know we uh, sell our research via subscription Uh, we've been doing this you know research since 2006 and you know we're value-based with a top-down and bottom-up combination approach to complement each other
0: Awesome stuff. So I will link all that inside of the show notes. So if you're listening on YouTube, you could look at the comments below. Or if you're listening anywhere you get audio podcasts, just check out those show notes to figure out where you can uh, look at all their research and uh, connect with Gordon on Twitter. So Gordon, thank you so much, man, for coming on. I'll have to have you back on and sometime soon.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.